Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. Have a real treat for you today uh, on the podcast, or if you're watching on the YouTube channel, uh, one of my favorite writers and, and somebody I consider a friend joining me today, Scott Snyder, uh, the legendary one and only. So, Scott, it's good to have you back on the show, my friend. That's great to see you, Jace. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. It's always good to chat. Yeah, it's, it's great. And uh, you've got so much going on. There's so much to talk about. Uh, I'm really excited. You've, you've taken some time off at of DC. That, that's sort of the elephant in the room. I did have some people uh, reach out to me and say, oh, you're, you're having Scott on the show. We got it. We got it. They started asking about DC stuff in a way, you know, you were synonymous with DC for, for so long. So let's get that out of the way first. Cause everybody's asking, sure. we, we, are we going to get more Batman with Scott and Greg at some point? Is he, was he not happy with DC? You know, like I said, it is kind of the elephant in the room and I, I, I kind of know your perspective, but there may be listeners that don't. So, oh yeah, no, I, I I like talking about it. I'm um I'm I mean I I'm I, I'm super happy with DC. I mean Marie, you know, is one of my closest friends. Uh, I always you know had a I had a a good relationship, if like passionate and volatile at times with Dan and uh, Bob and that whole regime. Um, but they were always supportive in the end and let me and my team. Um, kind of do the things that we really um, were excited to do and believed in. And, and um, but with Marie, I mean, you know, Marie and I, she's like family friends, you know, so uh, I, I couldn't be more uh, thrilled with kind of her leadership and the way things um, are over there now. So it's, there's no, there, there was no kind of, um, it was hard for me to leave honestly with that happening just because there was a lot that I wanted to be able to be a part of or support or um, all of it. But I had really swore to myself that when death metal was done, that would mark about 10 years at DC and that I needed to leave and do some stuff for myself. And um, I had so many ideas that I was just dying to kind of put to paper. It, I just felt like it would be playing it safe. And then, um, so I was going to leave and take about a year off and kind of do my own stuff and then see where I was and where DC was. And they were very kind about kind of making a landing spot for me um, to come back to um, if I wanted then a couple different books. Um, or if I decided I was going to go to Marvel, they were supportive. You know, I was thinking of all that stuff. And then the pandemic hit. Um, and I had already been working on a few of these books on the side, but um, when it hit and everything closed, retailers, publishers, everybody, it really was one of those kind of inflection points or those crossroads moments where I, I wasn't sure what to do. You know, part of me was like, do I play it safe now and take those kind of roads back to DC or Marvel and really sign back up for a good long two, three years to, to be safe? in these conditions where everything is so volatile in the market, or do I kind of double down on what I'm trying to do? And I spoke to all the people that I was co-creating with, you know, Greg Capullo and Francis Manipal and, and uh, Francesco Francavilla, all the first people in the line and, um, and, uh, and Dan Panosian and Jock and Lisa Tula Lotte and, and everybody and Jamal and, and everyone had the same feeling, which was, no, if we can find a way to, to do this, um, we want to continue to do it. Um, and even if it means taking a risk and maybe not having it come out right when we want, we want to keep squirreling away, even if it means not taking money or not getting paid for a bit, all of it, you know? So everyone was incredibly committed and I was really grateful for that. And luckily what happened was, um, 
a couple options came along, some from uh, print publishers. And then as things started to open, also Comixology came along and offered to support the whole line and, and most of the books all at once. And so it became a matter of like deciding um, what, what we thought as a team would both be creatively exciting for us would also kind of take into account the new landscape, I think, of comics, which for me means keeping things really affordable for people under stress because it's stressful times right now. It's challenging times. Um, you know, as much as we talk about things recovering or not recovering all of it, it's like, it's just expensive. It's just, it's just scary times, you know, for people, I think on many levels. So I really, and my co-creators, all of us really wanted to find a way to make the books as cheap as possible um, we wanted to have creative freedom. That was the other thing. And we wanted to own the rights to them. And the last thing was for me personally, like I really wanted to try something that I thought would make comics stronger in the long run and not do something that would kind of, I don't know. I just felt like be sort of play it safe and conventional and people might disagree with me, although the support has been pretty incredible with this, but if you do disagree with me, I mean, out there, I, I'm totally understand it. I might be wrong, but I really do believe in what we're trying to do at Comixology with these eight books. The idea being that if you just subscribe to unlimited, you can read all of them for the price of, you know, one comic a month and discover all of these people that were my students and other emergent writers that are really exciting doing exciting stuff and all these amazing classics. There's like 40,000 books available to you, you know, with a subscription. And so seeing my kids kind of fall in love with their hobbies all over again during the pandemic made me want to be like, go fall in love with comics, you know, pay one comic a month, get the subscription, read all of our books. You know, it probably would suit me better to be like, buy each one single issue. Right. <laughs> but I feel strongly about what we're trying to do. And that's kind of how I wound up over here doing all these books in a staggered way, but at once and sort of pushing off a return to DC or Marvel for a little bit. Um, you know, for me again, like I just, I need another, I need like a good year from where we are right now to finish everything, I think. So I love what's happening uh, at DC. I love the people there right now. You know, I'll have a lot of friends there and, and I'm very, uh, very, uh, you know, also, familiar and tied in with the people at Marvel. But um, I just want some time to be able to make things with my friends my way and our way really and, uh, and see what we can do. You know, I'm, it's cool. It's like the goal. One of the fun things about getting to produce so many books is that you have the rights with your friends. So like I have by the end of the year or next year, I'll have nine books really even more than that, where, we can go out for option for TV and film without that being a focus for me at all. Like, I don't want to write TV or film or I don't care if it becomes something like that. Really. I hope it does, but having the rights and having that um, financial support of being able to do a book you love like Noctera that will keep going a while and then having it be optioned or that, you know, getting to go out with it is, is a huge um, support system financially for creators as well. So I don't know if that's like super boring or also things that people want to hear or don't want to hear about like that landscape right now and how, how big a part of it is, I think, like with the streaming wars going on. But it's a really fascinating time to me, I think, and other creators for making sure that you're owning the rights to your own properties right now, just because it's so there's such a demand for content everywhere, you know, 
Yeah, no, it's true. And and really, I mean, it's really been, it's been over a great, it's been over a year now since, you know, you, you kickstarted Noctera with Tony Daniel and you had the comicsology, you got the Substack going on. It's you really, it's been an incredible success as, as challenging as the world is right now. And I, you know, I know you and I have talked about, we worry, we both have young children. We worry, what, what are we leaving behind for them? But I've been watching what you've been doing this last year and it, it, it makes me happy for you because I know what a, a great person you are. Um, and, yes. and, you know, we've talked about, uh, you know, the digital, us both feeling like it's the spinner rack of, of you know, that we grew up with. It, yeah. You don't see comics, you know, at the local convenience store, but the digital is, you know, in people's pockets and it, it's sort of analogous to a spinner rack. And we'll, we'll talk about distribution of the comicsology stuff in a little while, but I wanted to get back to something you said in your, your answer. You use the, the phrase, play it safe three times in that answer. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I noticed it is because we've had this conversation before. Um, and I think we've, we've talked about before, I think it was at uh, WonderCon, we were talking about uh, Rebirth, when Rebirth started. And you talked about moving on from Batman and how you knew you could keep playing it safe and keep cashing the check and tell more stories, but you didn't want to play it safe. You want to constantly challenge yourself. The other thing that I know about you is how much you love horror comics and how much kind of <laughs> fear is a part of your life your storytelling and i feel like with these books you've been doing with comiXology with noctera with this creator owned work it's some of your, your best work i feel that you've done thanks. in a long time thanks how much of of you as a as a creative do you feel like you need that fear as a little bit of a motivator like am i making the right choice am i am i pushing myself enough as opposed to being kind of the fan which you know you love dc you're, you're a fan as much as you are a creator of these characters. Oh, yeah. yeah, you could keep, you know, working at DC. You could go over to Marvel. You could tell stories of these characters that you're a fan of. But do you need a little bit of that fear behind it to make sure you're, I'm, I'm treading new ground. I'm, I'm doing something new. There's the fear of failure, but in a way it pushes you. Is that? Oh, well, that's a great question. Yeah, no, I, I, I thinking about it. I mean, I, I think you're really right. I, 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 I do need that. You know I mean? My biggest fear, I say to James all the time, uh, Tynan, like we talk, you know, I talk to him all the time and he teases me that from the moment I started, you know, it's always the same fear, which is, am I not the most exciting writer to myself? Am I doing something here that's making me irrelevant to myself? You know, again, it's, it's, I'm not a competitive person when it comes to other creators. Um, I, I never have been. Um, I certainly like, I have my, my grudges if like somebody is, <laughs> I have an argument with somebody or they're trying to destroy the run, you know, whatever, like I've had my feuds. It's not that. I just mean that I'm, I'm not by nature competitive with other people at all when it comes to create uh, creative endeavors. I really am to a probably too much of an extent or a destructive extent competitive with myself where I'm always like, there's nothing you can say to me that's critical of my work that I have not thought 10 times worse about myself at any minute. So, you know, you can like have it in that way to everybody out there because, you know, I sit there kicking the tires all the time, just being like, is this good enough? Is this good enough? What am I not seeing? What angle am I not seeing? Is this exciting enough? And it's not about being liked or people receiving it well or that kind of stuff. It's about you in your gut knowing 
you gave it everything you could for each story. Even if you couldn't get it where you wanted, you tried the best you could and really were always pushing yourself to do something you hadn't done before. So my hope with the best jacket line is that it's obvious, you know, on the surface that um, what we're trying to do in the expanse and the kind of creative breadth of the line is, uh, is that it's obvious that we're, we're all trying to do things we haven't done before. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have a really big fear of, of looking in the mirror and being like, you're, you're playing it safe or you're doing it for the money or that kind of thing. I think, you know, it comes from a, a real, just a deep, uh, deep kind of discomfort with that, that I feel like is based on, I don't know if I told you this last time, so just cut me off and tell me if I'm repeating myself, but you know, um, there was a period when I was working in books and, uh, I had sold a novel. Did I tell you this? No, I don't think you have. So it was before I broke into comics, I'd always wanted to be a comic book artist and a comic book writer. And then because I wasn't good enough at art, I wasn't sure how to break in and writing. And um, I started writing short stories and I went to grad school for it and all of that. And so I went more into fiction and I was lucky. I kind of hit, you know, uh, the lottery in the way that I was in grad school for it and came out right when there was this big boom in, in fiction and in um, uh, short fiction in particular, there were all these like young writers that were getting these really big deals um, because Jonathan Safran Foer and, and, uh, and um, Nicole Krauss and all these people in the McSweeney's sort of the wake of all the McSweeney stuff were just like rocketing to, you know, fame and things were getting made into movies. And so I wound up getting this really sweet deal where I got a book of stories published called Voodoo Heart. And then the same publisher bought a novel, but bought it on spec. So it wasn't written yet. It was just an idea. And uh, some of it is actually kind of not the exact idea at all, but some of the inspiration for that novel is, is going to be in Barnstormers, the book I'm doing with Lisa Tula. Um, but uh, I loved it. It was all about a guy about, it was all about kind of early aviation and a guy who was trying to fly across the country in one of these early linen winged planes and just keeps crashing. And it's like his adventures and they, but the, what I didn't realize, cause I was a kid. I mean, you know, I was in my early twenties was like when they buy a book from you, uh, you know, for a lot of money, they don't bait, give you the money <laughs> like up front. They yeah. give you the money when they accept and, and approve the book, which takes a long time. And so it, and they can always reject the book, which didn't occur to me because I had had such a good relationship with them on the stories. And so what happened was um, the economy kind of collapsed in, you know, 2006, 2007. And um, I was working on this book and it became clear to me that Random House like really would need it to sell very well to be able to pay me what I was supposed to get and recoup their losses. Like, so it would have to be like, it would have to be kind of a bestseller or look like it might be for it to be worth it to them to not keep rejecting it. And I'm sure part of it was like my own paranoia, but also what happened was I kept trying to make it something that was more commercial and more what I thought they would want with like a villain and a love interest and all this crazy shit in it. And um, that period was so miserable in my life. I had this dream job where I was like working for Random House, doing a novel. Like it was all the things that I had wanted, but I went to work miserable because I felt like I was writing it for somebody else just to make the money, just because we were broke, me and my wife, and we had a mortgage and we were literally had just had a kid also. 
And it was like, we were about to have a kid at that time. And I was like, what do I do? Well, I'll just, I'm going to play it safe and like do this one the way they want and not worry about who I am and my voice and trying something different. I'm going to make this the most likable book in the world. And then on the other side of that, I'll be able to do my own stuff once we're out of these dire straits. And it just, it was physically like repulsive where, I mean, like my body, I felt sick doing it and I hated it. And I was, to be honest, like I was drinking too much. Like I hated all of it. Like, and my wife, to her credit, um, what happened was I got the chance to write a short story for an anthology a buddy of mine was doing where you make up, it was literary writers make up superheroes, um, new superheroes. And I did this story for it. My wife was like, why are you doing that for Owen? You make like a hundred bucks on that. If we like do your novel, we can pay our mortgage. And she was in school. And I was like, cause it's the only thing that I'm happy doing right now. Just give me like two weeks to write this story. And so I did it and she was cool about it. And um, I went to the reading for the book and I, and there were comic book editors there and they came up to me and said, they liked the story. And was I a real comic fan? And I had comics with me. I was like, I'm a huge comic fan. It's all I wanted to do. So they asked me to pitch. And then I started pitching and I got a couple small gigs. And again, my wife was like, why are you doing this thing for like $70 a page or whatever, you know, when it's like, and I was like, cause I love it. And it's the only time in the last like two to three years I've been happy writing. And so she was like, then why are you writing this book? Like, let's take out another loan against her med school, like, forget it. Like tell them you don't want to write this book and dissolve it and go, but do comics for real then like really buckle down. And, um, to her credit, I, I get like, I love her. You know, she was amazing about that. And that's what I did. I went to them and was like, this isn't working for either of us. And they were cool. And we're like, no hard feelings. I never got that money or any of it, you know, and I switched over here and I was like tutoring and working odd jobs and got, me got my foot in the door at DC and that. So that period of my life though, really haunts me still to this day, that feeling of doing the thing you like, but doing it in a way that, you know, is not true to yourself, doing it for reasons that feel, you know, exploitative and shitty, even if you're doing it out of desperation, you know, I'm not saying don't write something for somebody else in a way that makes you sick. If you need to, for money, I wouldn't judge anybody on that ever. Like, do whatever you need to, to, to make ends meet. I'm just saying that that for me, that phase was just so soul crushing that I never want to go back there. And the way to avoid it isn't to be like, Oh, never right. Make sure you have enough money writing. The way to never go back there is always to be like, I'm never going to write something because uh, I feel I have to for someone else or write it because I know I'll make money from it or write it because it's like the easy thing to do and bank this, but I'll do something more mine. The other side, you should always be doing if you can and you can afford to the thing that makes you, you and excited to, to sit down and type, you know? So that's where that comes from for me really is, you know, that the mis remembering the misery of that, <laughs> that phase. No, I, I think that's fantastic advice. If you're not doing something that challenges you, and it's a little bit scary, then what, you know, I, I'm not one to live my life playing, playing it safe. I mean, push yourself. That's the way you grow. It's kind of like bone or muscle, right? Like the way you grow bone is to put stress on it. The way you, you know, you and Greg know this, the way you, you know, build strength is you, you work out, you, you yeah. know, you, you lift to stress those muscles to, to make them grow. It's the same with growing your writing muscles. Make sure you're pushing yourself. I agree. You know, and that's, 
It really is like, and, and that's the, the people that I'm friends with in comics that I'm very close with overall are all built that way. You know, Greg being a prime example where Greg could easily coast at this point, phone it in. He could always not give every page his all, but I mean, the guy slaves over every page to this day because he's always wanting to be better. Like he always wants to be better this year than he was before. And he studies things and looks at acting and all this kind of stuff. Even at his stage, he's always looking to grow. And, you know, pretty much everyone I work with is that way. I mean, Francis is certainly that way. Jock is certainly that way. You know, Tony is really pushing himself on Noctera. I mean, all of it is that, you know, that's, those are the people I gravitate towards. You know, I wouldn't want to work with Greg if he was like, let's just go back to Batman and do Batman. Um, the hard thing is like, you still have ideas. Like I have ideas for Batman all the time. Like they're, I I'd easily could do another three or four years on Batman, no problem. But, you know, it's, it, that it, it would be, again, it would be going back to something that I feel like I'd be doing out of, it would be regressive at this point. So it has nothing to do with love of the character. I, I, I still have tons of stories for bat for Bruce and the whole bat family, but I just, uh, I just feel like I, yeah, I'd be, I'd be going backwards, you know? So maybe, maybe one day when it doesn't feel that way, I think, you know, I could imagine going back and I do have stories from Marvel that are different that are challenging. Like for me, that would be different, you know, all that I'm up for that challenge at some point too, but um Wolverine and Punisher and Captain America those are the characters I really gravitate towards the most um that I had Ghost Rider I have stories for them um but you know again it's just they're totally different beasts like working in the working in the superhero world whether it's Marvel or DC you're dealing with the same calculus even if the numbers are different like right you're dealing with like, for example, what the fans think of the character, where the character is and kind of the trajectory of their life publicly. You're dealing with the continuity of where the character is within the matrix of storytelling at that company. You're dealing with other creators in terms of how they're using the character, peripheral characters that, you know, intersect with what you're doing. You're dealing with the politics of the office in a really big way which eats up a lot of time, you know, about which editor is doing what and how you communicate with your editor. And there's like, a, and then there's all kinds of marketing and publicity and all of it is like, it's like a whole, I don't know how to explain it. It's like the difference between going in and having an office job where, you know, there are all these things you have to consider all day, all these personalities, all this stuff. And there's a joy to that. I like working in an office in that way at times, but I can tell you, I can write five more books than I could working at DC when I'm doing it myself, not just because, you know, they're mine and nobody's telling me how to make them better. I have an editor who tells me how to make them better all the time, <laughs> Well done, but it's, it's just so much stuff that you don't have to think about even just creatively, like take out all the politics. Just when I have to think about Batman, I have to think about Batman in the media, Batman in the fans' minds, Batman, where he's been lately at DC Batman, all of it. Like there's, there's a whole triangulation that happens, you know, like if I'm going to go over and do Captain America or Wolverine, where those characters have been recently, who's been doing them, what's the fan surge in it? Where is it? Does that change my story at all? Not at all. Not like 1%, but it, it changes the way I frame it. It changes the way I approach my entrance to the character. It changes the way 
I think about how to sort of open the book and stuff, you know? Yeah. All those things are, yeah. The the other thing that it does as, you know, a person who's been reading comics for over 40 years now uh, and younger readers may not have realized this yet, maybe they haven't read enough comic stories, but there's a subtext when I read a Batman story or Wolverine story or Captain America story, you can push the envelope, like you said, and, and not change your story and push the envelope as far as you want. But in the back of my mind, I know because this is a million, if not billion dollar property for this company, these characters are going to have to come back to the status quo at some point. Oh, sure. Right? When I read your stuff that you're putting out with Comixology or all the best jacket stuff, Noctera, all that, there, the potential is sky's the limit. I have no idea what you and yeah. Greg are going to do when we have demons. And that's part of the joy of it. I can be more surprised. I can expect more surprises because the freedom is, is in your hand. You own this property. Yeah. And, and it's so fun, man. Like that. I, I, I never understood people that kind of knocked people that did superheroes because they loved the in, working in indie. And I never understood people that kind of knocked indie from working in superheroes. I mean, for me, they really are like inverted. It's an inverted process, you know, where superheroes, you're starting from a place where everybody knows the character and loves them and loves the mythology and they don't know you and what you're going to do. And you're coming on there <laughs> like to kind of convince them that you have important things to say and do through that character that you're passionate about. Creator owns, they kind of know you and they're like willing to give you a chance, but there's nothing built that they love. And you're building all of it from the ground up and it's all theirs as much as yours as your, but it's as you design it in that way. So it's, it's, you know, in reverse processes from one another. So they're apples and oranges. Like I don't, you know, I, I love doing both. I just, it's like, I can only have so many apples for a while before I need to like go over and have some oranges, you know, that way. Right. So it's, it's more like if I were to jump right from DC to Marvel, even though they're very different people and different tones, there's the same calculus, you know, it's the same calculus and restrictions and, I love the restrictions sometimes like you can't kill the character, you know what I mean? Like, or you can't come in and like break the rules, you know, and that's fun to do that, to work within that box. Cause sometimes you can be even more creative in certain ways doing that. But um, I just need, I needed some time with no box at all. And it's been like, I have books. There's, there's wait till you see what comes in 2022, man. These, this next wave, this wave of, I couldn't be prouder of this wave of books. Like I love them every page of every book, but the next wave too, like Barnstormers is like nothing I've written before. Canary is like nothing I've written. And um, uh, I mean, Dudley, obviously the YA book is like nothing I've done, but then also I have a couple things you haven't heard about yet that are coming that are um, really different with different creators than I've worked with before too. And I can't wait for people to see, I really think it's my best stuff, all this stuff. So yeah, I'm I'm really loving it. I agree. Like you, I can tell you're having so much fun just doing this. So, so let's go, let's go down the line. Um, it started with Noctera, which you, you crowdfunded. And I know you and Tony have talked about it before, how it, uh, the fans showed up for you guys, you know, like you, you were saying before, it was a risk with the, the pandemic had just started. We were all in lockdown. You didn't know. Um, and then uh, from there, you know, the announcement with Comixology. So let, let's just go book by book. We'll start with, with Noctera. Give us a little bit of background and how the response has been and how you and Tony feel now that you've had a couple of uh, arcs out under your belt. Oh, it's great, dude. I mean, so Noctera was like, you know, the very first thing that I was going to do with Best Jacket where it was like, can I just try to do one book with image that's going to start funding some of the other books 
and it was an idea I loved. And Tony and I talked about it um, years ago, you know, back in like 2017, 2018, we started talking about it. Um, and so we were all excited to do it when we freed up. And it was all about, you know, to me, it's it's very much about this this period, but in different ways where it's like a darkness that separates everybody and turns them into monsters they don't recognize anymore and trying to find a light that will heal all of that and bring people back together. So, you know, it has a it has a kind of corollary to, I think, the at least for me, the way I see the zeitgeist. So it was a very powerful book, as well as like big fun trucks and serial killers and monsters. Um and anyway, like we, we had it lined up an image and the pandemic hit and, you know, I could have taken it elsewhere, kind of self-published it or whatever, but we wanted to keep it there. And we really loved the guys there and felt strongly about having it um, be a part of that um, house, but we didn't know what to do because the, the pandemic hit. And I was like, well, why don't we do something? It was the beginning of thinking about best jacket, like for me, making it public, best jacket. I've had it as a company for myself as an LLC to get paid through, you know, cause most creators you incorporate. So you don't, you're not getting paid you, it's like your company, but making it a public face and saying, you know what? I'd like to just operate differently on many levels, like creatively, but also I'd like to operate differently when it comes to what I'm giving to the community in my own way, meaning, just try to be a better player or more engaged in ways that matter, not necessarily in ways that are, you know, talking as much on social media for me personally, which I can get down a rabbit hole with, but more like doing things, you know, myself and making things that I felt were reflective of the priorities that I hold with comics. And so best jacket was like, all right, look, if we're going to do the book, why don't we do it in a way where we're not going to take any money from image now at a time when, clearly other creators would need it more um, and image would need it for other things. Um, we'll do a Kickstarter, but we'll offer something that speaks to all the things we think are missing in the pandemic. We'll give people, you know, signed material because we're not going to be back at cons uh, back then in, you know, 2020. And uh, like also we'll give them an inside peek about how we make comics so they can feel a part of it. And because I want to start teaching again. So we'll do that, you know, and sign it and all of that. So it became about how do you do something that offers people access? How do you do something that lets them see who you are both creatively and as a person in a way that maybe they haven't before? And how do you do something that you feel good about going out there in the community? So it's not just like, Hey, it's the same issue you're getting from image, but could you give us money for it for a hardcover or whatever? It's, it has another value, okay, another utility beyond that. So that was where Best Jacket came from, was Noctera in that way, being like, I'm going to start operating with this sensibility from now on, with this way. And so the book wound up being a big hit. We were really thrilled. It certainly broke the uh, expectations of what we had for it and surpassed them. And now, um, yeah, I mean, Tony works on it full time, which is fantastic. And we did our first arc. It's, if you haven't read it yeah, it's about a darkness that covers the earth and changes like every living creature into monsters. And it's called the big PM, like AM and PM. And um, the main character is this young woman named Val who kind of grew up in the big PM and is a truck driver and uh, in this world. And so she's called a ferryman where she takes people and goods from outpost to outpost that she and her brother and uh, it's about her and her friends who are all truckers trying to find a way to bring back the light. So it's very pedal to the metal figuratively and literally. And it's like, you know, 
uh, high octane and, and horror and all of that. So I love it. And we just finished our first, we finished the first arc. The trade is out now. And then the second arc starts this in December. It's got a special blacktop bill. He's our villain. He's somebody who's been mysteriously bonded to this carbon stuff that makes him like a silhouette. So he can walk through without the monsters of this world that are called shades detecting him. But he's a very evil guy, like a, a, a mercenary. He used to be a serial killer. Now he's a mercenary. And it's a special about his origin. It's like Blacktop Bill number one. That's drawn by Dennis Callen and um, inked by Kent Williams, which I'm really excited about. And Chris Sotomayor is coloring it. And then in January, uh, Tony is back for the duration of arc, like arc two in earnest, where it picks up with issue seven and uh, it finds the gang all together in a big caravan of trucks trying to find a cure for this darkness. And it's big. It's really fun. It's like the second arc is definitely, I love the, doing the first arc, but the second arc is definitely better in my opinion. I really adore it. So I can't wait for people to see it. It's a blast. Yeah. And Tony, it's some of the best work of Tony's career. He, you can tell he's having as much fun drawing it and, and creating, right? helping you craft this world as uh, as you are. I agree. Maybe I can, let me see. He just sent me some awesome pages. Let me see if I can. Yeah, while you're pulling that out, let me ask you this about the, the Kickstarter. Was there any part of you that also thought, you know, in addition to the, the reasons you gave about doing the Kickstarter, that, you know, it you are leaving something behind by by leaving these characters at DC. You know, we talked about you kind of being synonymous with DC for a while. Was there a part of you that thought, based on the success of this Kickstarter, I might get an idea if my fans really want me to go in this direction for the other ideas of things that you had? Yeah. I mean, if they had really rejected it, I would have given it a lot of like pause, I think (laughs) in terms of like how to, how to proceed, you know, I mean, nobody knows now. And this, this moment is so weird, man. And it's so interesting. Like I, I love this moment, but it's also like terrifying, I think for, for all of us in different ways, you know, it's, it's such a strange, just such a strange, um, mix, you know, of things where there's this real, um, I think fear among everybody, like creators, retailers, that the industry is decentralized. You know, there's a feeling of, uh, worries about distribution and supply chain and paper shortages and, you know, that, and then there's a worry about corporate comics suddenly not having the same, I think, get in the ring and be their personalities of Marvel versus DC. And then there's, they're much more uh, kind of civil and removed and corporate in different ways than they used to be quieter and, and, you know, a little bit more kind of grown up and, and about, I think, branding and things that are, that are, not always the most, uh, you know, exciting to fans of comics and that stuff too. So there's that. And I think then there's like this really weird set of players that are coming in and making things exciting and scary as well, like Substack and Tapas and Kickstarter having, you know, this, this big few years too, and all of it. And you see creators and comiXology, like you see, you know, creators deciding to take their own, um, I think their own paths. And, and there's a huge excitement to that in that way. And, and a, there's a moment of empowerment for creators where I think a lot of us are just feeling like, oh my God, I can, I can turn my social media away from Twitter and Facebook and this stuff and instead use it as a real um, asset to me where I'm talking to my fans in a way that's more intimate more extensive, more honest, 
I'm offering them exclusive things that I can sell to them directly, or I can sell through retailers I want to go through that I want to help out with. Um, I can make all those choices for myself. You know, I don't need Marvel or DC or any company really necessarily if I can figure out the right math for me. Mm-hmm. So I think you see everybody kind of suddenly trying to kind of calculate what makes sense for them organically. And a lot of us, I'm sure, will make mistakes. But for me, that's why, like with Substack, I didn't want to use it to sell comics because I have all these comics over here that I'm doing. So I wanted to really use it just for teaching, you know, in that way. For now, for me, that makes sense. For somebody else, that makes no sense. And they they would not want to do comics that, you know, uh, digitally or social media anywhere else. They just want to be on Substack and do everything there. You know, like James right now, who I think is killing it on every level, yeah. you know, yeah. the new stuff he's doing, I mean, doing it over there. Yeah, I mean, it, and, and it's, it's a good lesson to, to freelancers, you, you know, when you're a freelancer, these companies don't owe you anything. You got to make sure you have your hands in a lot of pies, because you never know when one of those legs from the stool might get, might disappear, you know? Exactly, exactly, you know, exactly. Well, did you find any sneak freak uh, previews of- I'm trying to find what I'm allowed to show. That's the big thing. Let me see where Tony, here, hang on. Let me see if I can find a better thing. Here we go. Oh, that one spoils too much. Hang on. I'm getting there. I'll find you something good. Fantastic. Yeah. And uh, again, going back to the idea of fear, uh, I'm glad Noctera was the first thing to do a big creator owned splash for you because it's so rooted in that fundamental fear that we all have of being afraid of the dark. You know, here we go. I'll show you something pretty awesome. This is like his. So, what's the easiest way to do this? Let me down. Probably share screen. Yeah, I'm going to down. I have to download it because it's, oh, he screenshotted it. Ah. Let me see if I can, if I open it like this, will this work? Let me see if it's, sorry, I'm being so, oh man, it's too low res. I'll get another one. He he did a screenshot. Okay. Well, you can, uh, another, that one was get, so good. Another, it was, yeah, get another movie one. Palace. He, screen, he screenshotted it. That's the problem. He didn't, he didn't here, I'm going to, I'm going to share my screen, even though it's like, you can see how awesome these are. I'll show you a really cool cover. How about that? Instead, but you can't, I, I probably will get in trouble for showing it, but I'm going to show it to you anyway, because I love it and it just came in and I think it's the coolest thing. Uh, sorry, the page, I'll show you why I can't show the pages because they're all, um, but here, I don't want to bore anybody. I'm going to do this now. Cello. But yes, you were saying about fear. Yeah, I just, I, it was the perfect, I think, return to big, I'm going to make a big creator owned splash. You know, if I'm leaving DC, you're going to tell a story about the dark because it's so fundamental to, I mean, we're all right. afraid of the dark. Yeah, it feels like, and it's, it's a, it right now also, I, what it, where it comes to in the thing is like, here it is. Um, where it comes to is like a uh, a feeling that you can't just kind of bring back the light that existed before. Here, I'm sharing my screen with you now. But you have to uh, find something better than than what existed. So it's about a kind of darkness that doesn't need to just be like moved aside, but it needs to be overcome by finding a better way to uh, 
to be than you were before. You know what I mean? And I, I love that about it. So, wow. Isn't yeah. that awesome? That is, that is fantastic. And I love the idea that you guys came up with for the symbol that Val has on her hood, like that, that eclipse that there's light behind the darkness. And I feel like that that's a perfect metaphor for who Val is as a character. And I, and I, I feel like with the story that you've told with how much she cares about her brother in a way he's keeping him safe as her motivation. So in yeah. a way her yeah. love for him is the light behind the darkness. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You want to see something else cool? I shouldn't, I'm just going to show you something else cool. Look at these. I'm going to show you how awesome Greg's pencils are. So are we, is this, is this some, we have demons? Yeah. Look at this. Oh, fantastic. Well, well, that's a great uh, segue into, uh, into we have demons. So you made the deal with comiXology. So just a reminder, we we've reviewed these on the YouTube channel and the podcast, everybody, they come out on Tuesdays. Like Scott was saying earlier, if you have Amazon Prime, you get them for free. If you get the Comixology Unlimited for the price of one comic a month, you're getting all of his Comixology originals, as well as everybody else's Comixology originals, as well as this library of, of 40,000 books. Uh, and so this is the, the first one that came out. We have Demons. If anybody's not familiar, Scott, give them the elevator pitch. What is this crazy, wild story all about? It's really fun. So this year, this is... Lamb, her short for Lamasu. Her uh, her father is a, pa- a pastor in a small town in um, Florida, and she doesn't really get along with him that well. He has all of this kind of faith and everything. And after her mother was killed in a hit and run when she was young, she's had a lot of trouble finding faith, both not just religiously but in other people and in the future. And um, when he dies, she discovers that he was actually part of this demon hunting group called the Glories that date all the way back to the beginning of mankind and have been fighting this kind of this infection that landed here uh, at the beginning of life that mutates things into, into what we know as demons, these monstrous, these monstrous kind of deformed, twisted versions of ourselves. Um, So the mythology uh, surrounds these two materials, these two kind of metals, one being something that's the lightest material in all of the universe and its atomic number is zero, like a halo. Um, and it's made of subatomic particles in the nucleus with not um, protons. And then the heaviest material formed all the way out in the hearts of like dying black holes and things that's up in the 600s. It's a super heavy element. Um, and they, her father called these two things, halo and horn. And um, both have found their way to earth. And horn is what changes if you encounter it, um, evolved species into, into sort of hive mind demons and halo is what you can use to cut them down if you put it in blades. So there's like a thousand blades years ago, and now there's only nine left after all this time and no more halo has hit the earth since back then. And lamb discovers her father was part of all of this. He was like the kind of John wick of this group alongside, um, the other eight people that are, have blades that are, part of it that uh, live all over the world. And he had a partner named Gus who was half demon actually. So she winds up pairing up with his partner, Gus, who has a great history of his own. Um, who's this kind of big hulking guy who looks a lot like Greg in my opinion. Um, <laughs> and, and uh, she goes to find out who killed her father and what happened. Um, it, whether or not he's right about a big chunk of halo hitting the earth pretty soon. So it's kind of, it's, 
written in a way where it's very much about trying to find faith um, in things bigger than yourself and in a hopeful future at a moment when things are pretty dark and frightening. And there seems to be a lot more horn on earth than halo. And um, he, uh, 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 you know, um, but it's all kind of wrapped in this fried in this big burrito of like fun and gore and action. And it's very much like a Saturday morning cartoon, but like R rated. So I love, I love this book dearly. And it's sort of easy for me and Greg. It's just everything we love to do, but you know, redux like times 10 in our own way. So that's kind of my elevator pitch for it. Yeah. And Greg's really cutting loose. The, uh, right? I mean, the, the visuals have been fantastic for the, for the first couple of issues. But one of the things I, I love about it that struck me right from the beginning of the first issue was this idea, and, and this is going to carry through with all three of the of the comicsology books, the first three that have been released, where it's there's it feels like two big ideas mashing together. And in in We Have Demons, it feels like ideas that are typically in story sort of diametrically opposed. This idea of faith, mm-hmm. like you were talking about with Lamb and, and her lack of faith and trying to find it and it being a metaphor for all of us needing to find a little more faith in humanity and in e- each other right now. But you juxtapose it against this idea of of science, like the fact that you explain the elements and, you know, the atomic weights and how it's like, yeah, the, this is becoming in a way, a post-apocalyptic world, you know, it's this big disaster that Horn has caused, uh, which you can look at as, you know, a big disaster movie science, you know, Krypton exploding kind of way, or you can turn and look at it in the, the kind of through the lens of religiosity and belief yeah. and faith. And this is so, I mean, was that, that had to be purposeful, right? Like were you, did you realize I'm taking this idea of of science and religion and they're typically diametrically opposed, but I'm presenting them in such a way that you can look at either one as being the the cause or the downfall or either one could maybe be the path to fixing things. Exactly. And I think the the reason that I really loved that idea and wanted to marry those things was because they are usually kind of oppositional and, Mm -hmm the book is about bridging oppositional things. Like the book is about finding a way to have faith however you can in something greater than yourself now. So the idea, if you find it in the science and the mystery of, you know, the idea that, that, that we are these tiny things and we are, uh, what I really want is to me, maybe this is a roundabout way of saying it, but I'm not like, you know, a strictly religious person. Uh, I'm not, um, but I love, I love the idea of religion and I'm my family. Like I'm, you know, I consider myself a spiritual person. I believe in things beyond the material world. What I love about the idea of, of religion and I love, you know, I love about it in general, I think too, is the way that it, it teaches humility and connecti- connectivity, you know, to me, like that you go to an old church in Europe, you go to an old church that's been around 500 years, and you feel connected to generations of people who have been taking a leap of faith that there's something better than just what we can see around us, and that there is some purpose beyond what we understand, and that we're all connected through the desire to be a part of that and be better than we're just designed to be and bigger than we're supposed to be, you know, in this kind of flesh and bone um, organisms that we are that you're part of a bigger story, something that matters more, something that's better than you had hoped, you know, all of that, that you're, it's a reach, it's reaching for something better than, than 
what's apparent to you. And the opposite to me is what we see around us all the time, both in sort of um, emotional, psychological, spiritual ways, and in ways that I think people find bizarre, also scientific reasons to reinforce for themselves that, no, I shouldn't care about other people. I should worry about me and mine and, and my belief system should be all that matters and that. And to me, that's a self-aggrandizing kind of uh, methodology and, and is the opposite of what religious uh, belief should be. You know, it should teach smallness and humility and a sense of uh, wanting to, to do good for others, all of those things. And faith for me is that. It's like the idea that you are believing that your actions, if you do the right thing, will reverberate in bigger ways than you know, because you're part of a system that's invisible to you, but that is there somehow, that means more than you know, you know? Doing things only for reward right now or to reinforce things that you think uh, are urgent for, for your needs now, to me is not that. It's about, you know, a lot of the books focus on that, the idea of making yourself bigger and making your reality more important and a sense of, um, of uh, to me, collectivism, being part of something uh, larger than yourself. And so, uh, yeah, for this, I mean, the idea of bridging those things, having a mythology that says it's not spirituality as opposed to science. If you find faith in the idea of, like I do, how tiny we are and the magic that life was created in this little planet and that everything turned out this way where everything was perfect. And here we are. That to me gives me a sense of, well, maybe there's a, a grander scheme. Maybe there's a, you know, something behind it that I don't understand. How is that? So however you find a sense of wonder and humility and I think um, purpose and uh, just love of, of life that's faith that's okay if it's science or if it's religion so that's why i wanted it to be something where it wasn't about finding faith in a god necessarily though it could be that can be enough in the book for your blade to light up it can also be finding faith in something that you believe in that's a system that um is just bigger than you but good you know somehow yeah so. I, I mean it, it seems like such a great idea it's one of those ideas where i i'm surprised somebody hasn't done it before because yeah, taking this idea of, of science and taking this idea of, of belief, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. I can believe in science, but I like you, much like yourself, I consider myself spiritual. I believe there's things happen for a reason. There's something bigger than us that we don't understand. You know? Yeah, my wife, it's funny because I always think about her. I remember asking her when she was starting out in medicine and she's an um, interventional radiologist. She deals with early detection, breast cancer and pediatric cancer. But so, you know, she does a lot of, she used to do, you know, surgeries and, and um, all kinds of stuff. And uh, I would say to her, you know, how do you, how do you have any sense of, you know, of uh, this detachment from seeing the body as like this machine that you're opening up and, mm -hmm. and looking at the, just the parts, like, how do you look at life as something that isn't mechanical or that, you know, that way, how do you, how do you get out of that? And she's like, when you see the thing is like, the more, you know, about the human body, the more wondrous it is. Like the mm -hmm. more you open up and see a heart beating, it doesn't suddenly make you feel like it's just a piece of machinery. It makes you it really, it's 
awesome in a literal way. Like it brings awe to you to see how this thing works because you still don't understand it, even though you understand it. And that's, that's the stuff I believe when it comes to, I love astronomy as corny as it sounds. I really do. I love all the Neil deGrasse Tyson stuff and cosmos and everything like, because it you're, you're reaching for things that as much as you learn will forever then be, be retreating from you because the questions get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's faith to me too. It's studying things that, you know, you'll never get to the end of, but it's worth it because it's making you a better person, I think, and a, and a more grounded person just by, and a more, I think, kind person just by understanding the, how special it is to be able to have this experience right now. On yeah, it, it, it's that paradox of the more you know, the more humble you should become because yes. the more you yeah. learn, the more you realize how little you actually know about the, the, you know, the wonders and secrets of the universe. Yeah. As so many of the books have that as a theme right now. I mean, a lot of them, even at the end of death metal, there was a lot of that too, but that's become a big theme in the work now. I mean, I go through these different periods of like worrying about something and you'll see it in a bunch of books. Like is human nature, like, you know, just is human nature much worse than we thought it was? Well, that's like the Batman who laughs and all of that, like that, that whole, and Lex Luthor proposing that and justice league and, that's like 2017, 2018, you know, and now I'm kind of more, I think a lot of the themes are more what we're saying. It's more about less about kind of, are we bad or are we good? And more about um, finding ways to get back to a, a different kind of social contract with each other where we are believe in each other and believe in a future and, and don't see ourselves and our own experiences. So important versus, um, you know, the experience of, of all of us together, not even our experience, but the success of all of us together, you know, that how do we figure out a way of getting back to a place where we're willing to sacrifice for each other and have hard conversations and all of it so that we can, you know, get out of this dire moment where we just hate each other and we're ready to kill each other. And, you know, everything is, outside of uh, everything is, you know, also feels like entropic when it comes to how many problems we're facing that we're not even looking at because we're focused on this minute, these minute things like, you know, yelling about like, for me, like I have a neighbor who's, you know, conservative, I'm liberal. And I feel like I can't have a conversation when it's not like, well, you know, Mr. Potato Head did this. And I'm like, how are we talking about that? What does that matter? It doesn't matter to me if you know Mr. Potato Head or or what what about you know the this that like you know what they're teaching your kids in schools and I'm like you don't even have kids in school like the, <laughs> yeah. I I have kids in school and I, I see what they're reading and I appreciate the fact that they're learning history and they're they're learning about mistakes of the past and that and Anyway, I'm getting down a rabbit hole that's like not worth going down. Well, no, no, actually, it's it's a perfect segue, Scott, because a lot of what you're talking about is a matter of perspective and the way people are seeing the world in such a different way. And it leads right into the next book we're going to talk about, which is clear, drawn beautifully by Francis Manipal, where people literally are seeing the world in different ways because you can choose the skin or the veil, as it's called and choose to see the world in any sort of different way. So it's a perfect segue sure. into, uh, into clear. 
Yeah, I love that book. It's just what you said. It's about a future where everyone connects to the internet neurologically and you can veil the world however you want. So if you want it to have had a different history, that's the way it looks to you. If you want it to be manga style, that's how it looks to you. The superstructure is still there, um, but it's cosmetically kind of altered to look however you decide to, you know, perceive it. Uh, and it's about a murder. It's a murder mystery that takes place in that future where the main character, the detective always keeps his setting on clear. So he sees the world as it is, or so he thinks as the story goes on. So it's a very um, urgent book out of all of them. It's probably the one that's the most, I think, raw about sort of approaching fears that I have for this exact moment, um, as opposed to kind of, I think, translating them more into comic book crazy, like I do in Demons and in uh, Night of the Ghoul a little bit and some of the other books. Um, like Terra, for example, it's it's a little bit more layered beneath like the nuttiness of the book, but it's still there. Whereas here, I feel like it's very much the live wire on the surface and, and the book embraces a lot of those anxieties in a big way. Yeah, and again, you're marrying two ideas that are sort of at different ends of the spectra. When you talk about it being a mystery, it's very much crime noir, almost like this mm-hmm. gumshoe, pulpy detective story uh, who's, who's sort of hard-boiled and in the first so as we're recording this, everybody, the second issue dropped today. And it, it, it's fantastic and really deep into the mystery. But there's a there's a specifically a scene in, in the first issue where a, sort of a damsel in distress, if you will, shows up at his office. And it just felt, you know, right out of the 1930s. But then yeah. at the same time, you also are juxtaposing it against this idea of, of you know, technology. You talk about people literally we're all everybody in the world of clear is like with their brain connected to the Internet and this idea of taking technology so far that it, because to me, especially working my day job in IT, I technology should bring us together and make us closer. Yeah. They've jumped the shark and they've gone so far that now technology has gone so far in this world that it's actually siloing people. It's isolating them because much like we were talking about before with different perspectives and people don't see the world the right way and you have a hard time having a conversation. These people literally don't see the world in the same way. And so how can you feel connected? You can't even agree on what color the sky is. That's what I mean. I, it, it's like you can't, there are real things that require different points of view to discuss. I don't want to be in, like, I have this, this book came from a fear that Francis and I share. Francis Manipal, the artist in the book, came to visit a few years ago with um, his wife and his daughter. Um, and uh we were hanging out me and my kids and him and um, they stayed for a few days out here in our town and uh, we had a blast. And I remember talking to him about our fears that our kids were growing up in a moment that was like, you were saying like divisive and, and, um, and isolating, but also just everything they encounter, you know, when it comes to Googling things or Spotify or Netflix or Amazon, everything recommends more of what they already like or assumes what they're going to ask and sort of feeds them that. And there's a benefit to that. Like I enjoy going on Spotify and finding bands that I like based on the bands that I, but I also enjoy being challenged by things that I don't feel comfortable with. And I, I want to be confronted by things that take me out of my comfort zone. That's part of the joy of, you know, life. And growing up in New York City, that was always a part of it. It was like this public space you were in with people from all different cultures and walks of life and backgrounds. And you might not get along. You might not understand each other, but you were there 
and you were all part of this collective in some way or other and had to learn how to navigate each other, you know, and that, um, that sort of, I think is a loss. Now it's like, I see my kids and, you know, encountering something that you don't want to sit with is just such a different, it's so alien to them that it's spooky to me. So we wanted to do a book where you have the opportunity to literally, you know, insulate yourself from reality entirely and still go about your day fine. Like, and that's it. So that that's kind of the world of the book. And it also becomes this visual buffet for Francis to be able to draw whatever he wants based on the veils that people are using. So he's more, every issue gets better and better art wise. He's really like, you know, he just gets more and more comfortable and the stuff he's doing in issue three is amazing. So I, I love these issues, but wait till you see what's coming next. And yeah, it's a fun book. Yeah. Well, issue two really, you know, we're introduced to sort of this idea of there's this sort of secret cult or secret cabal or, or, or people sort of behind the scenes pulling the strings and it's, it's menace and the secrecy of it feels sort of more dangerous, I would say, as a group than anything you've done before. Did you really put a lot of thought? I mean, that, that had to be purposeful, right? Just the idea of, of what a threat they are as Dunes oh, yeah. uh, discovers them. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of different groups, too. I mean, the idea with veils is nobody they don't want anyone sharing them. So you can't have like a mass delusion and they don't want um, anybody uh, to be able to use ones that are uh, that uh, alter the superstructure of the world so that you, you, you still have to see things as they are like a car can't vanish. You have to see it but there are people that want that. And then, so there are all kinds of, they're, they're trying to draw the line between what actually is there and what's allowed and what's not allowed. And all of it is extremely difficult in this world. And so you'll see that that plays a really big part in the mystery. The woman that, uh, whose death he's investigating, who Dunes is investigating, um, is his ex-wife, but she also worked at the Department of Connectivity, the DOC. And so her job was partly to make sure everybody was connected correctly to the internet and that nobody was misinterpreting things. Um, and so her death opens up a whole kind of rabbit hole about what she was investigating uh, before she died or claims she, it looks like she died by suicide, but he gets a note from her on a gift she sends him that says she was murdered. So that's what kind of kicks off the whole mystery. So everything in it is kind of unreliable in a good way, but I, I love writing that book. It's, it's a real pleasure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I, I go back and forth. It's like whatever most recent comicsology original appears, I read, I'm like, Oh, that's my favorite. Then the next issue comes out. Oh, thanks man. That means a lot. (laughs) This is my favorite. And we'll move on to the next one. Night of the ghoul, uh, which you've been teasing on social media for years with uh, Francesco Francavilla. Uh, And again, it's this idea of, of two, different things the the reality and then the pseudo reality of of film uh of of horror film so you know something something that is near and dear to your heart this idea of fear and horror we've already talked about a little bit uh so so give everybody the elevator pitch what's uh night of the ghoul all about yeah well night of the ghoul is is super fun it's about a guy who works digitizing old films and he comes across the remnants of what's believed to be the greatest horror movie of all time, but was destroyed in this deadly studio fire in 1940 called night of the ghoul. And he takes the pieces of it and he tracks down the writer director who's still alive in hospice care in this rest home in the middle of nowhere, desert, California. And he brings his son and he goes to interview him one night and, and find out what happened to the film and what 
that happened to him, the director, writer, why he's been living under assumed names all these years. And um, it inter- the story intercuts between this paranoid, claustrophobic, terrifying night in the rest home as things become more and more monstrous there. And the original film, which French- Francesco draws in black and white and tells its own story of the ghoul, the monster, the ghoul, and, and how it um, how it came to be. So uh, that book really came from me and Francesco revisiting our love of classic horror when um, when things were getting really crazy in 2016, 2017, and saying, you know what, we the world needs like new classic monsters that reflect the fears and nightmares of this moment. And so we wanted to make something that was like the granddaddy of all the classic monsters. So the ghoul uh, is this parasite that hides in a human host. And when it comes out, it's really scary. It's like this, it almost unfolds. It crawls out of the mouth and then kind of unfolds. And it's like, you know, this gnarled kind of blackened emaciated thing that has this mouth that just, it unhinges and kind of opens in this creepy way. And it it has fingers that are like three, four feet long. And so they kind of crawl in front of it. It like, it goes like with its fingers ahead and comes around a corner like this, you know, with the fingers crawling around like spiders. So spooky. (laughs) But it hides in a human host. And then as it gets stronger and stronger, it develops, it's a, it's a kind of a thought of it's responsible for all these myths of um, gods of plague and pestilence in ancient times, because it causes disease and plague. It causes things that will wipe out all civilization. In addition to just being a scary and deadly thing itself as a creature, that's what it does as a defense mechanism. And so there's people, there are actually people that worship it, these cults, because they believe that um, when societies get too complicated or too myopic and full of themselves, the ghoul is needed to kind of level them and bring it back to a matter of survival. And so um, this monster for us, it's responsible for like the myths of vampires and werewolves because of different diseases it's caused over the years. Um, and so it is like this monster nobody knows about, but is kind of the the monster prime of everything. So we really, we're having a really good time with that one, making it, it's right up our alley, you know, but it's also a cool experiment because the cutting back and forth between the two stories is something I haven't really tried in a long time, like between two stories and doing it this way where it's such different styles and everything is a real challenge, but in the best way. So I love it. Yeah. I can't imagine anybody else drawing this, but Francesco either. I mean, he is just, this is just right up his alley. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that was the fun with all these Jace was like, you know, every book is something that was built from the ground up with the co-creator. It wasn't like, hey, here's an idea, do this, or can mm-hmm. you do this? It was like, like I said, like Francis and I came up with Clear Together and Ghoul, Francesco and I came up with together, a Demons. I pitched the basic idea of like, Greg, I'd like to do a book about a girl who discovers her dad was a demon hunter. And it's literally about finding faith in this moment. And we talked it all through and from the ground up like we built that one together and the same with every book coming like canary was many conversations with dan panosian and book of evil that has the longest gestation period i talked to jock about that book all the way back when we were you know finishing witches arc one so that one like you know they're they're all books that didn't have like maybe i'll do this with somebody else or maybe the what artist would be right for this they're all books created with the artists with that the artist, right just i mean it was more like you wanted to work with that with this talented person what's the idea we can come up with together yeah that's that's what it is like Raphael duck and cover 
I wasn't like, Hey, you know, Rafa, do you want to draw this? It was like he, and that's an idea that he came up with as much as me and, and is a real, you know, it's easily like a cool kind of wild stepchild of American vampire. (laughs) Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about all of these books, everybody to give you more of an idea what they're about, but one more question about night of the ghoul, and then we'll start going into some of the others that haven't been released. The other part about night of the ghoul that I love, and in a way it felt like the book that was, that reminded me most of you of what I know of you is the fact of the father son relationship. And as I'm reading it, and it's an interesting relationship that they have, because his parents are, are divorced and he's not necessarily happy to be there. And he's kind of smarting off to his dad. Yeah. And when I was reading the dialogue, I thought, yeah, Scott's son's about 13, 14 years old. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely like a fear of being a dad who's been detached from his kids in some way and not done a good job. You know, I mean, my dad is super hands-on and I, you know, he's always been almost frustratingly supportive. Even when I was like, I want to be a writer, you're not supposed to be this supportive Um, (laughs) where uh, you know, I, I certainly, I think struggled with fatherhood when we first got pregnant and had our son being like, am I going to be a good enough dad? Is this going to, can I still work? Like, how am I going to get my career up and running if we are underwater with everything? And so there was a lot of, I think, guilt and um, worry back then. And now I've really, you know, I've become very comfortable with that role and I love being a dad and and all of it, but I, I, I'm fascinated by people that like, you know, like this guy, uh, Forrest, who's the dad in the story, who don't see it as something that can be reconciled or didn't don't realize they're not seeing it as something that can be reconciled with their own goals or even worse, like him, kind of me- distort what they're doing to make it seem like they're doing it for some their kid, mm-hmm. where they're like, well, I'm just always working on this stuff because I want a better life for my kid. And all the kid wants is like to hang out with you, but you're like, I have to work, you know, that. And I relate to that impulse. I really do. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it has a lot of third rail energy for me, that book also. Yeah. And it's again, fantastic. So be sure and check it out everybody. Uh, So let's move on to some of the other books that haven't come out yet uh, that you've mentioned. Uh, we'll start with Barnstormers, what you're doing with uh, Tula Lote. And you mentioned some inspiration previously from the, this novel. This is sort of like a con man, con woman sort of high adventure yeah. in, the, in the 20s, right? Yeah, it is. And um, I should probably run around 11 to promise my wife in case the, uh, in case the uh, baby wakes up. So I'll, I can give you like a brief thing of each of them, if that yeah. helps. Like- yeah, we can do that. And, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the so Barnstormers is a uh, is it's about a guy who claims to have been a pilot in World War One who's flying around the country uh, in the 1920, um, giving people rides in the, his plane, which most people had not seen a plane at that time. And he comes across a woman who's running away from <laughs> running away from home in a really colorful way. I don't want to spoil too much. And um, they form a team and. And they decide it's this moment that feels a lot like now where it's in between catastrophe, pandemic, and uh, whatever is coming on the other side, which we all know is like the depression and all of that. But at that moment, people were just kind of pretending nothing bad was going to happen, even as um, the I think the working poor were really suffering, even as the rich were partying in this kind of Gatsby-esque way. Um, and so they decide they're going to fly on to these, the properties of these mansions in this, this summer where everybody is kind of having these parties 
sneak in without anyone seeing them and party alongside these rich people and steal things and then fly off. And so they become this kind of um, secret thieving group uh, duo that like flies in and steals stuff and flies away. And eventually they make a mistake that gets them um, on the police's radar. And so it becomes this, it's a very, very fun kind of a Bonnie and Clyde in the 19, in 1920, but done through the lens of early aviation. And that moment is a reflection of this one. So um, it has a different style entirely, really happy with it. Tula is an old friend uh, from, you know, the last eight or nine years we've been friends. Um, and uh, this book again is, is right up her alley. Um, book of Evil is the one I'm doing with Jock and it's a prose book uh, with graphic illustrations. So it's a mix, it looks like a journal. So it's like this artifact kind of book and it's written by the main character of the book who's a kid who's about 12, 13. And it takes place in a future where everybody is born a sociopath or 90 plus percent of the population have been are born sociopaths and it starts happening like now in 2022 and uh it takes place about 20 years after that and um when you're a kid you you don't know if you're going to become one of these a sociopath like everybody else or not until you hit puberty so kids are kept in this kind of slum called the cradle and you know no one really cares about them until they kind of grow up and if you are unlucky enough to grow up and have a conscience or empathy or use for all like the worst labor and that stuff, and then usually killed off or whatever. And so these kids are right on the cusp of finding out what they're going to be. And they run away to go find a, a kind of refuge from all of this. It's rumored to have a way of staving off the transformation. And uh, it's, so it's kind of like a stand by me type book, but in this world of total psychos and uh, it's easily the darkest book of all of them, but it has a lot of, it's, it has hope in it too, but it's very, it's very dark and it's scary. It's a very scary book. And he draws what he sees along the way. His dad was an artist and he's an artist. So Jock draws the illustrations as though he's drawing them, but he's very good. So it's Jock's art, you know, done through the lens of a kid. So I, I love it. It's a great fun book. Dudley Dotson and the Forever Machine is a YA book I'm doing with Jamal Eigel. And I, I that one is a huge fun thing too. It's about a, a brainy kid who's about 16 years old and uh, he's kind of an amateur inventor and uh, it focuses on an invention that was made by Daedalus, who in our book was a real person back in ancient times. It was a perpetual motion machine and because it defies the laws of physics. It actually opens up portals or doorways to other realities. And it's been passed down from inventor to inventor throughout the years, like famous inventors from Leonardo da Vinci to Tesla to all these people. And it winds up accidentally falling into the hands of this kid, Dudley. And so it's this, and he's being chased by this organization, the Needle's Eye, that's been after it for since ancient times. So it's this big epic adventure, like cosmic kind of cross reality thing that um, we we're writing with our kids, reading over our shoulders, who are that age, and it's huge fun. And um, then I have uh, Duck and Cover with Raphael Albuquerque. The, and uh, that one is about a, a post-nuclear attack world in 1956 where only, the only survivors are kids that hid under their desks who were miraculously spared along with their desks. And that's part of the mystery as to why that happened. And in this like rockabilly, weird, post-apocalyptic future, they all start to develop powers in different ways and they don't understand why that is either. So it becomes this like really wild manga-influenced kind of um a tribal book about kids trying to survive in a world where 
they're the only ones left. And it's also like the fear of the Russians coming and all the kind of 1950s iconography that you'd expect from a, a big Americana um, epic like that. And so uh, what am I, and Canary is the only, is the last one, I guess, like Canary is a Western I'm doing with Dan Panosian. We've been talking about it for quite a few years and it's about a mind collapse um, where all these people were killed in the collapse. And um, mysteriously, these events start happening around the mountain where the mind collapse was, where people start acting out in, in psychotic, evil ways and nobody understands why. And so this marshal is sent in to try and discover like, what's, what's, is there something in the water? Like what's wrong? And um, he goes up to the town where the collapse happened and he discovers that he's hearing voices from inside the mine as though people are still in there. And so that's the beginning of the book. And um, it's really fun. Like, I, again, I've said that about each one I know, but they are extremely fun to work on. So Dan's doing like next level work and they're going to come out in waves. So we're doing this first wave now. And as these books end their first seasons and to be really clear, like, the books are designed, um, many of them, not all of them, like Barnstormers is not an ongoing, it's like a six issue series. Um, Clear is meant to be a seasonal book where Francis and I really want to continue it and continue uh, like doing almost like a Black Mirror thing where we come, we have an idea for another kind of sci-fi thing together that's a totally different thing, but like within the same kind of rubric of coming and doing a, a story together that's a mix of genre and sci-fi, doing that. So the idea with demons is to keep it going for a while. Greg will take time off after the first arc to work on the Creech, most likely um, get, get some stuff up and running and then come back. And we're talking about either doing it where he helps me um, uh, with some art and some stories and, and I, we could find somebody else to draw some of it or waiting and then just doing all of it with him when he comes back. And, and so doing it seasonally, but the books are designed to continue, but the idea is they're staggered. So it would be like when this wave ends, uh, the next wave starts. So the next wave is going to be Canary, Barnstormers, and Dudley Dotson. And then the third wave will be uh, 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 Duck and Cover and um, uh, Book of Evil and one book we haven't announced yet as well. So it should be really fun. Yeah, we know that Comixology has, because uh, I, I know everybody always, they ask you this question, they've asked me this question. Uh, Comixology has a deal with Dark Horse that they print the, the Comixology originals but one of the things unique about what you're doing is these aren't just going to all be regular floppies, right? Like you're, you're going to talk a little bit about how you're going to make it special because each of these stories is very different. Yeah. And that was the whole, the other thing that attracted me to the deal that I should have said earlier was comicsology was that I wouldn't have done it if there wasn't a print component and they were still finishing the deal when I signed up to do it. So it was brand new. It still is brand new with dark horse where I think, I don't even know, I think maybe, Afterlift and um, I don't even know if Snow Angels is out yet, but the, there are not many books that have come out in print because again, like it was just, it was still nascent when we signed up to, to be a part of it. But the whole thing was Comixology doesn't have to have a print arm at all. They don't have to make any deal. They could just do digital and say it's never coming out in print if they wanted to be competitive. But my genuine belief is that digital has been held in a weird competitive position with print for too long where um, the content has to be the same. The price point has to be the same. The date release has to be the same. And the problem with that is it makes you choose like digital or print a lot of the time. Cause I'm not going to pay twice for a comic at three 99. It's exactly the same. But if you said to me for the price of a comic, I could browse all of this stuff and get the 
like digital versions and borrow the digital versions and have it like a library for me to explore. But the print versions would have slightly different material in them, you know, be released a little differently, different price points. I would probably get both if I loved it. Do you know what I mean? I would use my subscription to browse and then feel I wanted to own stuff for my shelf. And I would have saved enough money browsing the book that I would go buy the book then when I could, you know, uh, because it was only the price of one comic to read 10 comics. So then now I have the money to go buy the books themselves, you know? So anyway, um, the Dark Horse deal, what we're doing differently than anyone has done there before, but what they allowed us to do with Best Jacket was also to um, vary the ways in which we're, we're printing some of the books. So some of the books, and you can guess which ones, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say quite yet because they want to do a big announcement about which is which. But some of the books, and you can guess again, like which are direct market friendly, like by creators that, you know, we have a good track record in the direct market in our own way and are more bombastic books. We'll do those probably single issue with variant covers, the whole thing. So it feeds right into the direct market. Books might not be quite as direct market friendly, or at least not even not direct market friendly, but that we think would benefit from being a collection um, and go out and be, you know, a, a beautiful trade with different, with extra content, we're doing that with like a Barnstormers fits that mold a little bit better where it's not a book that I, it's not that I don't think it would do well in the direct market. It's just not a book designed that way, really. You know, it's not like, I don't want like variant covers on it. It's a quieter, powerful book in its own way in a different way as a reading experience that's immersive. So the point is like, we have control over that to be able to make those decisions creatively and, um, in concert with retailer uh, desires and demands when it comes to these books in different ways. So it really gives us a lot of freedom to be able to publish them how we want. Um, and they're all going to start publishing about six months after the digital release. So for Demons, I think Demons starts in March, I'm pretty sure in, in print. And the same thing with, I think Clear comes out the month at, there's, I, they're staggering them by month for, for print. So you don't have them like all in the same thing right, to yeah. um, have to buy. So I think it's happening like that, where it's like each of them goes like, you know, um, a different uh, month. And then it's like one, 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 two, 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 three, three, three. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's a fantastic plan because it goes back to something we mentioned earlier about digital being really the spinner rack that you can kind of browse. But yeah, yeah. I, I want, I want Barnstormers. Like I, I've envisioned it like, printed a little larger than a normal comic but like for some reason i in my mind it's square so i can yeah. see that beautiful painted latte art you know like I yeah yeah oh and by the way i forgot like when i said that one 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 two 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 it's like the um clear and google i'm not sure if we're going to do single issues with it all so there's no um it might be we might just decide we want to do trade with those so i we have to see Creator wise, I'm just going to talk to the partners and decide what we really, how we really want to finalize it. So the point is like six months after the digital, some version of the print will come out from Dark Horse for you, whether it's a single issue version, some books I'm talking about doing in three chunks, like three mega issues, things like that. So we don't know. We'll see what fits best for each one. But yes, they will come out in print. They will be direct market friendly and they will be special in their own right, you know, for your shelf. Yeah. And I, I do have to ask you about chain. I know you've been oh, working yeah. on that with Ariel Christina for a while. Do we have that's any awesome. news, yeah, I love, any news I love. On, on the release date or, or how that's going to be coming yeah, out? Yeah, we're just about, we're like halfway done with the first issue of it. Um, we both, we wound up like telling the whole story together, doing the whole thing and being like, oh, we love this and starting it. And then I think both of us, 
had things that wound up feeling like we, we like had to do them or she had some work that she wanted to do uh, there and there's no rush. So my feeling is we're, we're contracted and committed to do it um, together as a team. Um, And right now we're burning on it. Like she's killing it. She just handed in like 13 more pages the other day and it looks beautiful. So I'm not, we're still kind of figuring out um, the year in terms of what I don't want to do is like start having it come out and then realize we need more time or that. Yeah. We're just going to bank issues together. And when we have three or four in the can, then just release it, you know? So it's a hundred percent like on track and coming. And I couldn't have a better partner than Ariella. She's like knocking it out of the park. I think it's the best work I've ever seen from her. And I already loved everything she was doing. Um, so I feel extremely lucky to be getting to work with her on it. And yeah, it's a hundred percent on its way. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's smart because the worst thing is I have an issue or two come out and then have it go away for a while. It loses momentum. There's some, as you know, the shelves are crowded, you know, it's, it's tough to, to be seen. So everybody, if you're not familiar, chain is this idea of the, the food chain is flipped upside down, right? All of a sudden, yeah, exactly. humans aren't at the top of the food chain, we're at the bottom. <laughs> yes. For some reason, all of a sudden, every level of the food chain begins attacking us. And every it happens like every six hours, the next thing attacks. So we, we know what's coming and we don't know when we hit the top, if we're going to attack each other or not. And so it's about a bunch of people in the Arctic who are up there in probably the safest place because there's so few animals and bugs and things and, and trying to decide what to do when they find out that there's a, a bunker that um, all these rich people had kind of developed in case of this, cause they knew it was coming. And so it's this, it's a very claustrophobic kind of zombie farmhouse story, but it's has this big backdrop of apocalyptic, world ending stuff. So I really love it. And again, like, you know, I can't say enough good things about Ariella and the work she's doing. She's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a lot of things scare me. The idea of that scares me. Like the whole idea of you, the fact that, you know, it's coming, <laughs> it's inevitable. Well, that's yeah. That's the fun is the ticking clock. And they, yeah. they see the evidence in the first issue with the bugs this guy crashes in a helicopter and they see bugs all over him and stuff. And you know, that it's, it's really, it's really fun. Again, I said, I said that about every book that it's fun. I feel like a broken record, but it's the truth. No, it is. So, it is. I can, I'm telling you, Scott, you're killing it right now. I've thanks. never enjoyed your work as much as I'm enjoying all these very different ideas. And, and like, I, I totally agree. If you're feeling like you're putting out your best work, I'm backing that up, man. I feel like you're I do. putting out your best work right now. I, I really 100%. do, man. I, I honestly feel like the reason is because we're all able to do things together on our own terms, you know, and, and that just lends itself to all, it opens up all this sort of, this creative freedom, I think for us where, you know, Greg and I can be like, like just Greg and I as an example, and then I'll stop is that, you know, we, I love working with Craig, but I've never worked with him, not in a situation where we were under a lot of pressure mm-hmm. schedule wise from a corporate standpoint, sales wise from a corporate standpoint, um, connective connectivity wise, like in terms of where the line was, what we were doing, you know, last night on earth was one of the only times I got to work on it with him, like on the side of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and even that had a lot of pressure to, to sell a ton and all right. that stuff from DC. It didn't change what we were doing, but there was just a lot of hoopla around it as our last Batman story in that. Um, so, you know, we just haven't had the chance to be like, 
Greg, take a couple extra days and make this page awesome. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's because demons we've been working on for a long time way ahead. He just, he's finished the third issue. Like right now he's on the last page too. Um, and, um, you know, I, it's, it's just, it's that. So each group, like with Francis, we, we have different things we've never gotten to do. We worked on Justice League and we had freedom and creative freedom a little bit. Um, but, you know, we didn't get to do things that were this personal. And so every creative team, I think it's my best work because they're doing their best work and that makes me rise to the occasion. And so for anyone out there that's an aspiring writer, I really think the key with comics is bringing the best out of your partner by allowing them the freedom to really shine and trying to adapt you know, and share as much as you can um, in terms of the, the creation of a book so that they feel a sense of ownership. And, and, mm-hmm. and then you'll get such great work back that it inspires you to write better than you thought you could. And that's the thing here is that, you know, we have no, no restrictions. So Francis is like, I have this idea that I think will make the sequence even weirder and better. I'm like a million percent. That's all I want to hear. Do it. And then I'll, you know, adjust to what you did. So I love that. Yeah, it's, it's good advice. So again, thanks for your time, Scott. It's always great catching up to you, uh, catching up with you. And, you know, like I said, this is your, your best work. Um, do you want to, as you, as we wrap up here, do you want to remind everybody about uh, Substack and the opportunity that uh, you have going yeah. on there? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, sure. So the other thing I'm doing, um, I'm teaching a class called Comic Writing 101 um, through my Substack. And uh, essentially what you do is you sign up over there the uh, for seven bucks a month. And I do one class a month, but I also do like a newsletter that you get exclusively once a week. And it has teaching tips and it has thoughts on different books and it has like insights into the industry and craft and everything. But the class is like a two hour to three hour class, like once a month on a different topic of comic writing. And sometimes I have guests like this week, tomorrow night, uh, Wednesday. Um, so it will already be archived by the time you see this. Um, we have Chip Zdarsky on, and we're going to be talking about building character arcs together. And he provided some great materials some daredevil issues and afterlift. And we're going to be looking at an issue of which is this, there was a standalone that I did and talking about building character arcs over the course of one issue things over the course of three issue things over the course of a whole series um, and how to do that, how to use plot to further character, all of it. So um, I really craft base, really open. I do it from my uh, local comic book store at 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern to about 11.30 p.m. after they close. And um, the, all the classes are archived right after, so you can watch them and listen to them uh, whenever you want. So you don't have to be there for the live class if it's too hard for you. So it's really taken off. We have over like 2000 people in it, which I never expected to have. Um, so it's, I thought we'd have maybe a few hundred. So it's a huge inspiration. I love doing it and I definitely give it, give it my all. And, uh, yeah, come, come be a part of it. We have, we really have a blast. I mean, even if you'd sign up for one month, like this, you know, week and check it out, the archive to one of me and chip, and see how it goes and you don't like it, you can always unsubscribe. So it'll cost you seven bucks to take a three hour class with us. Yeah. And the who's who of people that have been in classes that Scott has taught that are working in comics now, that, that, that says everything you need to say about this man's ability to uh, help people get the most out of their own cre- creativity. Oh, thanks, man. I really, it's funny. Cause I, I, 
I feel so lucky to have been a part of any, their story at all. But I feel like, again, like I, they probably, I probably got more out of them than they did out of me, but the, the Greg always teases me and says like, you're training your replacement, but my deep belief, like sincerely, I don't remember if I told this to you last time, but my, I probably did. But like, my belief is that if I'm doing my job correctly, it's the opposite where I'm teaching you to be you like as a writer, not teaching you to be me. And my goal is never to make you write things that I would love to pick up in my own taste. It's about helping you write the story that you would like to pick up in your taste, in your terms. And that's the goal of the class. So, you know, it can be for beginners, people that are just starting out, totally comfortable to people that are working. We have some working pros and friends of mine that are taking the class, which is intimidating for me, but fun for you, I think. And uh, yeah, I like, I was doing the list the other day just to be like, but James Tynan obviously was a student of mine for a couple of years, like for quite a few classes back when um, I was starting out teaching comics and uh, Phil Johnson, who's on action and Mike Morisi, who did the plot and Barbaric and uh, Joel Jones and Matt Rosenberg and Vita Ayala and uh, Mags Visaggio and yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Like, uh, I'm really, really proud of that. You know that, and I again, like, I'm uh, so grateful to them for even you know being in anything with me. And yeah, Amy Chu, and uh, there's a lot. There's yeah, Marguerite Bennett is another. And Marguerite Bennett, 100. Marguerite's amazing. I love Marguerite. Uh, yeah, there's there's a bunch. Yeah, uh, fantastic. So, well, yeah. everybody, I'll put a link to Scott's Substack in the show notes. I'll also put a link to his Twitter. Uh, he's always talking about the great comics that are not only his own work, but other uh, comics that he's reading uh, that, uh, you know, I wish we'd had, would have had time to, to check out, but we'll have you on again and we'll talk about what you're reading. Yeah, we'll you do it. Let's do it. We'll make it a monthly thing. If you want, that'd be fun. We'll yeah, talk about it really it next, yeah. Next time we get to talk about other people's books. It'd be fun. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you again, Scott, for uh, your generous time. Best to the family and to all you listeners. Uh, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Be sure you go and check out Scott's uh, Substack. Give them a follow on Twitter if you don't already. And uh, as always, we thank you for your support and for joining us. We'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.